Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to another edition of Believe in the Press Road. Jonah Siegel here the morning after Super Tuesday, which would make it awesome Wednesday in sunny Seattle. And really pleased to have Alex Reamer joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, where Elizabeth Warren is likely licking her wounds this morning. Alex, how are you? I was going to say it's an awesome Wednesday, depending on which candidate you supported yesterday in the Super Tuesday contests. Yeah, <laughs> we're not, we don't do politics here, but I'm, I'm feeling very uh, negative towards the notion that anyone left on one side is going to do anything meaningful against the current in the current president but i i i would agree with you wholeheartedly yes which is unfortunate i actually said to somebody earlier today the saddest part of it all is the best the democrats could put forward are joe biden and bernie sanders i think they're both north of 75 and in the year yes well it's really disappointing well, I was going to say, you know, you know that, uh, that the primary isn't where we thought it would be when a white guy, Pete Buttigieg, drops out and the race somehow becomes less diverse. So, <laughs> you know. Brutal. Just absolutely brutal. Anyways, let's talk about something more fun than politics. Um, you've had a really, really cool career. Um, when I Google you, that this incredible picture pops up as, with you as it looks like a 12-year-old, and I apologize, I'm just guessing sitting in yes. the Boston Red Sox dugout, holding a yes. microphone with an AOL flag on it. What was that all about? Yes, well, that was really the pinnacle of my career, and it's been all downhill uh, since. Um, so I was a uh, precocious 12-year-old, and I you know, thought, for some reason, people cared about a 12-year-old sports opinion. So I got the idea to start a sports blog in a Red Sox podcast. This was way back, Jonah, in 2005, the mid-aughts. So, you know, this stuff was still in its relative infancy. And I partnered up with AOL because AOL used to have a sports radio call-in show called Sports Bloggers Live. And I was a sports blogger who published on the AOL platform. So I took it upon myself to call in and for whatever reason, gained a little bit of a following from my call-ins and AOL sent me to the Red Sox game one day that summer, 2005. And I spoke to some players and the Today Show came and filmed it and did a little segment on me. So that was, uh, that was definitely a cool summer for, uh, for the 12-year-old version of myself. Holy hell. Like, how nervous were you doing that? Uh, I mean, pretty nervous. The funny thing is, though, you know, I've always been one of those people who, uh, this is changing a bit as I age, but I've always been, I feel like, more comfortable kind of speaking to large audiences than even in one-on-one -on -one social settings, if that makes sense, especially at that age. Like, I don't know. I've never been, certainly you're nervous when you have a big meeting or an interview, but I, at that age, I don't know, maybe you're too dumb to care. I don't know. I didn't, it never really phased me, any of that stuff. And what was the reception like from the Red Sox player? Who was it again? Oh, uh, Johnny Damon and Kevin Millar. This was 2005. So this was right after they, win the championship in 04, they break the curse. You know, they were very, you know, they were the idiots. That's what they called themselves, the bearded idiots. You know, they were very, like, fun-loving team. And here in Boston in, you know, 05, you know, 04, 05, you know, the Red Sox were at the height of their popularity. I mean, they, you know, totally own this town more than ever. Um, so it was such a cool experience, and the players were awesome and, and very receptive. So 
it's funny like one of the things that it says about you on um yes some website that i'm looking at that at 12 years old you went on the tonight show i did yeah so that so it's all part of that same summer so so i started blogging 12 years old the boston globe actually is the outlet that first kind of got onto it i still i forget how the reporter even stumbled upon this 12 year old sports blog but he did and he wrote a story on it and then that's where it picked up steam i was on you know i don't know if i exactly went viral because it was still pre-social media really but you know news still got around so i was on the today show as you as i said and yeah the tonight show about uh maybe two months after that Red Sox event, the Tonight Show called and asked me to come on. And I, I spent the day out in Burbank with Jay Leno and was on with the Blue Car Comedy guys. And that was just a wild, wild experience. And still definitely uh, one of the highlights of my life for sure. <laughs> and, and, and according to this, you got into a fight with Larry the Cable Guy about steroids. Oh, yes, it was. Oh, brutal. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I was a, you know, I was a, a smarmy 12-year-old. I wanted to take the contrarian stance of, steroids actually were good for baseball and saved baseball because remember Jonah we're going back again to 05 at the beginning of this where Bonds, Clemens all these guys were vilified so I thought it'd be smart hey let me get some attention let's say the take that steroids were good for baseball helped you know the bottom line of baseball so whenever you have a, a preteen talking about the bottom line I'm sure it's you know a little a little peculiar so that's how I wind up on the Tonight Show and you know Larry the Cable Guy and those guys were awesome you know they were totally nice to me we had really fun banter. It was it was a really great experience. I still have the uh, I still have the racquetball net that uh, that Jay Leno gave me as a gift. So, that so there is, you go. That is so awesome. Good for you. That that is. Yeah, it was fun. So, as a as a young blogger, will you confirm for the audience that bloggers don't live in the basement and don't just wear bathrobes? Because that is a misconception. Well, I mean, I was twelve, Jonas, so I did live in my parents' house and spent a lot of time in the basement. No, I don't recall owning a bathroom. But you didn't live in the basement. I, 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 no, I had a bedroom upstairs. Awesome. So you then, um, you then went to Boston College? Oh, no. Come on. Boston, Boston University. University. BC is our rivals. Come on, Jonah. We should back up the tape. You went to Boston University and got a degree yes. in journalism. Graduating. I did. Boston, I may add. Wow. Well, you, did, you certainly did some deep op research. I'm a little nervous here. <laughs> So you, you graduate there and then tell us what happens. So, you know, my, my whole dream growing up was to work in sports media and even more specifically, Boston sports talk radio. That was my goal. I was, you know, teenager after high school, turning on our sports talk stations, WEI and later the sports hub, the other station when it launched um, about 10 years ago. And I was just obsessed with sports talk radio. I wanted to like send cookies on, on, over the holidays to sports talk hosts. I mean, it was a little strange for sure, but I just loved it. I wanted to do it. I wanted to meet these guys. So my goal, of course, through college was how do I get a job at one of these two stations, WEI or the sports hub. So, you know, I did major in journalism and after college, I was fortunate enough to cobble together some freelance opportunities. And I got the idea of, okay, I really want to get on the radar of WEI, I have to forge a strong relationship with one of the hosts. And maybe we'll get to the point where they invite me on as a guest. I'll do well. And in my mind, I'm thinking, and you know, then maybe I'll be on more and there you go. So I don't know how closely you or your listeners follow the Boston sports talk scene. And you can please feel free to interrupt me. But 
So there was a morning show on WEI called Dennis and Callahan, hosted by John Dennis and Jerry Callahan. Um, very highly rated show. Actually beat Howard Stern head-to-head quite a few times in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, uh, when Stern was really at his peak in terrestrial radio. Um, and, you know, it was a very, it was a show that was about sports, but the two hosts were very conservative and they did a lot of political talk and what have you. But, but so anyway, so they added a guy named Kirk Minahan to that show, who I think completely kind of changed sports talk on its head, whereas his persona was, he really was a sports talk show host who made fun of kind of the banality and stupidity of average sports talk radio. And that was kind of his shtick mixed with a lot of shock talk type stuff. I loved it. I never heard anything like it. So I got the idea to profile him for Forbes one day. I did. It, it happened. Got on their radar. And, you know, a few months later, John Dennis leaves. It's now called the Kirk and Callahan Show. They bring on a different rotating third host every day. And one day I got the call to come in with the guys for an hour. I did. This was in 2016, right into the lead up to the election. So, you know, very contentious time. Had a great hour. Got kept getting invited back for more and more shows. And a few months later, I was at EEI full time. So that's kind of my, my little story in a nutshell. You know, it's funny because one of the things that, that, that is important to me, and I have no idea why, is that there are, we continue to encourage young people to get into the business. Um, right. I talked to the Canadian schools that teach broadcast and broadcast journalism. And I get a lot of outreach from folks saying, it's great the kids go to these schools, but there's no flipping jobs. So like, what are we really teaching them? And I, I really try yeah. to use uh, my pulpit a little bit. Um, and it's not big, but really to impress upon those who are in the business to make sure that they're hiring young people for front of camera, behind the camera, uh, even print um, blogs, what have you, to make sure that, you know, sports is only, you, you need the athlete to do their thing, but if people aren't covering it, the fans aren't getting the full benefit either. It's, uh, it's really refreshing to hear uh, about someone who grew up passionate, not just about sports, but about those who cover sports and followed that through at a very young age to a college career and all the way up uh, to gaining notoriety and building a career for themselves in the industry. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Jonah. I mean, it definitely, you know, it's, but, you know, the big, one of the big lessons I've learned is that, it, you know, it, it really is also about, you know, just getting opportunities, taking the most of the opportunities. I mean, it's hard, there's no doubt. And then, you know, like, there's luck involved too. Like, you know, so there, when John Dennis leaves WEI, they have a new morning show, Kirk and Callahan, and they are looking for a rotating third host. And I was probably like, I don't know, the 30th person who they called in. I mean, they called in, you know, real professionals. Not that I wasn't a professional, but you know what I'm saying? I was 23. I mean, you know, so, you know, like what if John Dennis never left? Or what if the first 30 people they called in stuck and they didn't need to call in number 31? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, I always stress to people who also ask me, you know, how do you get started? I go, you know, also just to be blunt about it, luck and timing plays a role too. And when you do get that break, you got to make sure to take advantage of it. But, you know, I think anybody who's achieved any even small modicum of success, you know, just has to realize those realities too. So there's, I agree. There's a degree of being in the right place at the right time. Right. Being smart enough to recognize it and take the leap of faith. 
Exactly. And for a lot of people, that's not easy. Um, so oddly enough, I'm doing this research. So what, what brought us together is your work on Forbes, especially in a, an article you recently wrote about uh, Adam Schechter and, and the NFL collective bargaining agreement, um, which we will get to. But so, so last night, as I always do before I do these things, I start doing some research on you. And <laughs> one of the things that you're mo most famous for that I guarantee you my yeah. listeners will know about, I had no clue that was you. So I will tell you that without question, um, I had no idea that that was you. I had no interest in the story of bringing that up. But on Thursday, January 25th, the world really, if they didn't know you before, they certainly knew you. Hey, why don't you walk us through what happened? Uh, I mean, yeah. So, well, there you go. It's, it's the big incident. Uh, no, I mean, so this was, yeah, boy, over two years ago at this time. Hard to believe. Time really flies. Um, you know, so, uh, so Tom Brady comes out with his uh, Facebook watch series. Uh, do you even remember this, Jonah? Tom vs. Time? Oh, 100%. I remember the incident. Okay. I read, I read this last night. I said, holy shit. I can't believe this is the guy. Yeah, yeah. So, so he comes out with this Facebook series, Tom vs. Time. Um, and, you know, I was at WEI at that point, full-time, hosting shows, writing, you know, numerous blogs a day for the website, just, you know, really generating as much content as possible. And I got the bright idea one night after the show comes out, I was on the air to be a real smart-ass. And when I would first come on, the my partner asks me, you know, just a perfunctory, hey, so you know, Reamer, what'd you think of the, of the, you know, of the, of the Facebook series and, you know, me trying to be a smart ass, you know, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to just make a joke about, you know, how his kids were annoying, you know, cause I, uh, you know, I wanted to put kind of the heel, you know, I'm the cool guy, like, you know, nothing phases me. So, you know, I make that smart ass comment and what do I know? Uh, Tom Brady, of course, does a weekly spot on our station, <laughs> probably the most valuable uh, asset of the station, frankly. Um, and, you know, the, comments makes its rounds and about 96 hours later Brady shows up for his weekly interview he hangs up on our morning hosts the show that you know I was a part of Kirk and Callahan and uh and yeah I was at the Super Bowl that week for about 12 hours before I got called back to Boston I was suspended I was you know it was uh it was definitely not a definitely not a good time that's that's for sure so good on you like even though it's, you know, two years is either a lot or a little time, but good on you. Like you've obviously reflected upon it. Um, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do? Oh, just don't friggin' say it. I mean, you know, like the, the comment I made was, uh, so the first scene of the Tom vs. Time Facebook series is his young kids who are, you know, like five years old, they're jumping around being just cute kids. And, me trying to be the prince of friggin' darkness. I'm like, oh, you know, his daughter was acting like a real pissant. For, again, no reason. It's nothing I believed. It's nothing I would say in real life. And, you know, the one thing I will say is I, I did think that the coverage, you know, I love reading that, you know, I quote-unquote attacked Tom Brady's daughter. It was a glib, offhand remark. It was over in two seconds. But you know how things get portrayed. Dumb thing to say. No real upside. Not funny. And, again, the biggest thing is, Jonah, didn't believe it. And, you know, that was always – one of the things I struggled with when I first got to WEI my first year or so there, you know, I'm the young kid, I'm fighting for airtime, I'm trying to make an impression, and it can lead you sometimes to say things that you don't believe. And, you know, that's the biggest lesson I got from that. Like, that's not who I am in real life. Obviously, I didn't think that at the time. 
I was just trying to be the a-hole to stir the reaction. So, so, you know, so in hindsight, what that taught me was, is, you know, obviously in talk radio, I think there is an element of exaggeration that has to be in place, but you still have to stay true to your core beliefs or otherwise people see through it. They think it's phony. So that's the, the biggest lesson that I, that I gained from, from that whole uh, dumpster fire, if you will. Yeah. You know what? Like it, it, this is what interests me. And, and this is why I, I cover sports media because the guy that used to hold the, the crown, if you will, in Canada um, that owned the drive home radio show was notorious for creating a character, a gruff character, right. um, you know, being the jerk so that when people would call in, he'd be an ass. Um, that's one thing. Uh, it's completely different. And, and I'm not taking you to task. I'm just literally at a, I'm just commenting. Oh, I've we, heard it. <laughs> we, we, hear, we hear all the time people say things and you just really wonder to yourself, like, do they actually believe that? Um, right. And, and, and often as a listener, I wonder, have they been coached to be controversial and not authentic? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I would say in my instance, nobody coached me certainly to, to demean the, the young daughter of, you know, basically football's version of Jesus in Boston. I can tell you for sure. Nobody coached me to say that. Um, but you know, like there is the expectation that, you know, especially in the position I was in, I didn't have my own show, so I was really, even though I was employed full-time by the station, my goal was to be on the air as much as possible. You know, I didn't want to just write for their website. I wanted to be on the radio, and, you know, how do you get on the radio? You prove that you can generate a reaction, so that is kind of, and, you know, in that year on, you know, I came out on the air. I really kind of tried to play this kind of uh, really antagonistic role to our largely conservative audience. You know, I was the young, brash, openly gay, liberal kid who was just going to, you know, F this, F that, like really be out, out in your face. And, you know, that was the role I played. And that was what I was kind of trying to do with that Brady thing. So I, I guess, you know, I'm rambling, but it, no one explicitly tells you what to say. But, you know, there is that expectation that if you want airtime, you will have to get get reaction well how do you get reaction an easy way to get reaction is to be outrageous but you know obviously there are a lot of pitfalls there as as i've learned do you think it would do you think the reaction would have been different if you said it differently if you said i love the show love seeing brady but holy hell was his kid that was his kid in that annoying maybe i mean i think the pissant one is what generated the news you know if i just said oh his daughter was annoying no one would have noticed or cared the pissant is a a weird word it really is kind of a, a really vile word when you look up the definition. <laughs> so I was actually, I think, Merriam-Webster's like word of the year or something like that. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. So I, I think the word pissant is what really generated uh, the news cycle, if you will. So Brady said he didn't want you fired. Kudos to him. Um, have you had to engage with him since? Uh, no, I mean, I don't really cover the day-to-day -day of the Patriots or any of the local teams around here. Um, no, I mean, after, when it happened, I did reach out to the Patriots and asked if I could, you know, send a note to, to Tom just, you know, to apologize. And obviously, that's not what I want to do with my platform, the little young children. Um, and the Patriots, you know, to their credit, answered my email. They said I, they would pass a note along to Tom. So I wrote something 
you know, I don't know whether he read it or not, but I mean, certainly look, I mean, that was happening at the start of the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, Brady kind of diffused it with his comments that night. You know, if he, if he you know, commented, you know, so by saying, oh, I'm, I'm over it, you know, I think that really kind of quelled it or else, you know, it could have taken on, I think, even a bigger life. And certainly I think, you know, could have, could have cost my job. You know, I was fortunate to, I was fortunate to stay employed. So you got temporarily suspended there and then you, you rejoined? Yeah, so 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 I was again. So I was a full time employee of the station. I was. I, I think my role was brand personality, whatever that. Means. So basically, I wrote for the website and also did some air shifts. Again, primarily in morning drive as like a third host for that show. Um, but after the Brady comment, yeah, I mean, I was off the air. I was suspended entirely for about a month, um, two weeks without pay. And uh, then I was off the air, I think, for like the next five, six months. I mean, I was still writing for the website every day. I started a podcast, but I was off the airwaves until that summer, which was immensely frustrating. But, you know, you try to, when you lose, don't lose the lesson. And one of the lessons I learned from that is, uh, you know, my whole life from the time I was 12, I was just so professionally focused. I really only judged myself in the lens of my career. I mean, that was a time where, the career wasn't really going on. Like I was, you know, writing articles, but I was reviled, vilified. They were keeping me off the air. I didn't know whether I would be back on the air. And that really told me as a person that it is great, okay, to be professionally ambitious, but you can't be so ambitious where it kills you. And you can't be so ambitious where you just create this angst around you. So it was definitely a time for some personal, personal reflection. There's, there's no doubt because as I'm sure, you know, Jonah, you can get very easily carried away in this business. You can be always checking Twitter. You can be always checking social media. You can just be obsessed with it or it consumes you. And uh, that ultimately is not a very healthy way to live. Yeah. I mean, I, I say this to people all the time, the, the, the people who I cover, the only thing worse than me being critical of them is not me not talking about them at all. Um, right. So, so then, you know, then you, you go from, you know, dropping one type of bomb to get a reaction, you know, to going really personal um, in, in, in a time where that wasn't, unfortunately, it still isn't overly easy to do it now. Uh, how did that go over? Are you talking about coming out? Yes. Okay. Um, so that happens well, that happens well before Brady. So just a little timeline. So I started with WEI. In October of 2016, Brady happened in late January of 2018. So I was already kind of a fixture at the station at that point. But when I started on the air, I started with the morning show, as I mentioned, Kirk and Callahan. And one of the questions they asked me one of my first times on was, we have, you know, Alex Reamer here from Forbes, Boston Magazine, blah, blah, blah. Is there something the listeners don't know about you? And at that moment, I had never come out. I'd been out in my private life, you know, since college. But, uh, you know, publicly, I never come out. So I said to myself in that split second, well, you know, I have one of two options. I could say something, you know, kind of fun, but ultimately boring, like, okay, you know, I was on The Tonight Show, or I can come out of the closet, announce I'm gay on the highest rated morning drive show among men in New England. And what do I do? And I went with that because ultimately, Jonah, I feel like to be successful in talk radio, you have to be yourself. And it would have been impossible for me to be myself without saying I'm gay. And so I went for it. And, you know, I don't regret it one bit. I mean, frankly, I don't think I would have the career 
I would have had if I hadn't come out. I, I think me being openly gay really is, was a way I differentiated myself from every other kid in their mid-20s breaking into sports talk radio. So, you know, I, I definitely wore that on my sleeve, sometimes maybe a little too much early on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt like if I am going to try to make it here, I have to be myself. And in order to be myself, I, I just had to come out of the closet. It wasn't really – it was more of a when, not if question for me. Well, well, good on you, seriously. And thank you. I, I read the bio thing again last night, and, and it, this bothered me. And I hope I'm able to articulate why it bothered me. It says the last line that you live in the suburb of Brookline. Uh, you're fond of flag football, good for you, and is an openly gay newscaster. And what yes. bothered me was that we still live at a point where that matters. Um, you know, and, and, yeah. I mean that, and I mean that very positively, like, I, I hope we get to a point where people can live their lives however they want. Um, and and that, that's literally how I mean it, that it, they don't need the, uh, there doesn't need to be that footnote, so to speak, to distinguish because we all just accept it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Hopefully one day. But, you know, I think that it is, you know, we don't have, especially talk radio, sports talk radio is so it's really the last bastion of kind of, uh, of, 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 uh, of male supremacy. You know, it's like the last place where you can debate, uh, you know, should a woman be in the locker room? You know, can there be a gay player in sports? A lot of these social debates that society as a whole has moved on from are still very pertinent in sports talk. It's a very, very conservative listening base. It's a very conservative listening culture. So, you know, for me to be a young brash, openly gay host who would talk about like his grinder hookups on the air on again, a sports talk radio station. Like I, I take some pride in that. I think that is kind of notable. So in Boston. yeah. Uh, What'd you say? Especially in Boston. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Boston's interesting. It's a very progressive city on a lot of fronts, but you know, sports talk here. Well, who listens to, who listens to talk radio? Number one, <laughs> white men and you know, middle-aged older white men. Right. So that's your demographic pile already. So, you know, I, I think that's a reason why you see a lot of sports talk still skews very conservative when they get into more social issues. Yeah. As I said, like good on you, really happy for you. I think it's fantastic. Uh, my comment was only to say that I hope one day things like that aren't, aren't issues of notoriety because we've arrived at a place where we're all comfortable with that. Um, oh, yeah. Hey, here, here. So I want to talk about you've written some really great articles. Um, Thank you. So the one that drew me to, you, to reach out to you was an article you wrote about Adam Schechter. Um, yes. Basically. And I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, um, Mitch Album got into serious trouble for writing a column about, I believe it was a Lions game or a Pistons game or a Michigan Wolverines game, for basically writing a story that he didn't really attend. And I don't know why, like when I read your article about Adam Schechter being a show for the owners, what stuck out to me is, is the comment that Schechter doesn't really go to stadiums and games. He really just, he deals at the boardroom level. And right. here he is opining on what a great deal the bar, the CBA is, and yet he's he's not getting it from the you know hundreds of players who are actually having to deal with it, as opposed to just the owners right. giving them information. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's so that's the thing with these NFL insiders. You know, like a guy like Schefter, 
Ian Rappaport, I think, is probably the biggest example of this. You know, they I, – I, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them reporters, Jonah, because they don't they, – they basically just preempt press releases. You know, if what you report is going to wind up on a press release anyway, well, is that really journalism? You know what I'm saying? Like, they'll never report something that the NFL doesn't want out. And so you always have to remember that when these guys are breaking news in regards to something like the CBA, it is coming from the owner's side. It is coming from the team's side. Um, and I think with Schefter, you know, that was pretty apparent within the last week from the way he first described the CBA on his Twitter feed. He continually said, you know, this is a quote unquote transformative collective bargaining agreement, um, which was pretty crazy. And, you know, then he posted the wrong figures. He said that this would give NFL players the biggest cut of revenue, uh, you know, in regards to any sport, which is just flat out wrong. Not true, as many people pointed out. So that was obvious owner spin from Schefter. They didn't quite double check before posting it. So yeah, you always have to keep in mind when these guys tweet out stories or scoops, it's coming from the ownership and league side of things. And uh, again, I think that was very evident in how uh, the CBA has been reported so far. And, and excuse me, the CBA has not been accepted, correct? They, they're, they're still, players are still voting on it, are they not? Yeah, not officially. So that's the other thing, too. I mean, so, as, so two weeks ago, you know, Schefter and these guys were framing it as if it was a fait accompli. You know, this is going to get done, definitely. Uh, you know, and that, again, is framing, telling you it's coming from the owner's side of things. The owners want to rush this through because they want to renegotiate TV rights this offseason on the heels of another rating surge. Um, so, so yeah, so, so that just is, so even, so yeah, so it hasn't been ratified yet. Uh, the NFL PA, its leadership narrowly passed it. Now it goes to a vote of the full members. Um, so no, it's not passed yet, even though a lot of the wording would you do to believe that it was passed, you know, weeks ago. Yeah. And a lot of your colleagues have actually taken the time to actually go line by line, issue by issue and point to the fact that this isn't a great deal for the players. No, I mean, it goes back to revenue share. I think the current proposal would bump players up to 48.5% of revenue. They want 50%. That's what guys get in the NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, I think, is around there, too. Because, uh, of course, the owners want to increase the schedule to 17 games. But, you know, the thing is, the NFLPA is such a diverse body 60% of its members are making the league minimum. So what do the owners do? They shrewdly put in provisions that speak to the lower rung of players. Everybody instantly gets like a $100,000 raise if the deal is passed. If you're Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, a lot of these stars who have spoken out about the CBA, obviously hundred grand to you is nothing. And you want to try to convey to everyone else that in the long term, 100 grand is nothing. But again, if you're making the league minimum, and let's remember the average NFL career only spans about three years. So a lot of these guys aren't even going to get to free agency. Their career will be over beforehand. So the NFL owners know this. They know how divided the players are. And as a result, they made their CBA speak to the majority of the membership, which looks like it is still poised to pass this, even though so many stars have come out against it. So I want to be respectful of your time. Um, this has been awesome. No, that's fine. Fans, um, fans can find you, uh, if they want, at Forbes.com slash sportsmoney. Uh, obviously you're on Twitter. Do you do still do yep. radio hits? Yeah. So, uh, so as you mentioned, I write for Forbes. I uh, am the deputy managing editor for Outsports, which is a really cool gig. Um, thrilled to be part of them. Joined a couple months ago. Talk about the intersection of 
LGBT culture and sports, which is a growing passion of mine. And yeah, I do some radio. I do some stuff on CBS Sports Radio nationally. Just finished an overnight spell for the last week. So excuse me if I'm a little groggy. Uh, so yeah, piecing it together, man. Piecing it together. Well, good for you. It's uh, really nice of you to join us. Um, Alex is, uh, is, I don't want to say up and coming because that's not fair, but he is certainly a breath of fresh air from a younger, not young, younger generation of <laughs> sports media. He is not afraid to write his opinion, uh, not afraid to take on the institution of sports media or sports in itself. And uh, it's really refreshing to read and, and to hear you the times that I have. Jonah, I really appreciate the kind words. Your, your check is in the mail. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that instead of the check being in the mail, that you'll agree to do it again. And uh, this has really been fun. Uh, we didn't get into a lot of the X and O's, but covered a lot of your background. So the next time you, you join us, we don't have to spend all the time on that. And we can get in to the hot and salacious issue of the day. Anytime, Jonah. I'd love it. I love talking sports media. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this week's edition of Believe in the Press Row. And uh, you can find us on all your favorite podcasting outlets. And we will be back with you soon. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.